You're listening to the Bible uncut and unfiltered. We believe the Bible doesn't need to be watered down or cleaned up to be understood. Our goal is to provide a healing place to discuss the questions you can't ask and the context you won't learn in church. I'm your host, Colin Connor. Now, on to the episode. From the very beginning of the biblical story, God's goal for humanity has been to dwell in Eden peace with them. A garden-like paradise where God, humanity, animals, and the land can all live together in harmony. And even after humanity rejected that idea of living with God, he has continually tried to bring them back to that. And as we go here into the flood story, God instructs a human to create a mini Eden where he'll bring animals on and he'll be in the presence of God. This week, we talk about Genesis 7 and the way it inverts the creation story from the first couple of chapters. This is the opposite of that. This is the Bible's first decreation narrative. Chapter 7 is the official start of the flood. So we have talked about Noah, we've talked about some flood mythology, and let's just get right into this here because there is a lot to cover this week. A lot of very interesting terminology that we can cover and address some angles that you probably never heard in your Sunday school versions of this story. First, I want to look in verse 1 because there's something that I've definitely heard a couple of times when I was growing up, and it's that there was significance in the first word that God says to Noah as they come onto the ark. The chapter begins, and I'm going to read this in the King James. You'll see why in a second here. But it says, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. And I have heard some preachers try to make a point off of God saying, Come into the ark. Now, if you look at essentially any other translation, uh, all of the ones that I could find, they say, go into the ark, enter into the ark, something along those lines. I think the King James is the only one that says, come into the ark. And so there are some preachers who would try to say that God himself was on the ark, and that's where safety is. So you're trying to call people to come into the safety of where God is. And so this is going to be something that you're really only going to hear from King James-only style preachers because that is the only translation that says that. And the problem is that's just not a good argument. The word there that is used can mean come, but it can also mean go. It can also mean enter into. It is a very versatile Hebrew word just for moving in a direction of some sort. So it is completely appropriate for the King James to say, come onto the ark. It's also appropriate for the other versions to say, enter into the ark or go onto the ark. You can't make any kind of an argument over a specific direction implied here because that's just not there in the verb. So it sounds really good. It would probably look good on a gospel track, but it's a bad argument based on a faulty premise. So if you hear someone say that, I would be cautious about what you listen to from them about the Bible because that's going to be arguments based on English and that's showing that they don't really have an underlying understanding of the Hebrew or Greek text. Now, as we get into this story, I I want to point out that we have seen a lot of wickedness transfer generation to generation throughout the biblical story. It begins with Adam and Eve, and then it compounds in the generation of their children where Cain murders Abel, and then it just continues to compound, especially as we get into chapter 4, and it gets all the way to Lamech, who is like the anti-king, and he is the ultimate version of Cain who says that he deserves seven sevens of protection from God since Cain only got 
seven. He wanted double that, uh, if you will. Bible math is funny how it works sometimes. But really what we've seen so often is just a consistent drumbeat of humanity getting worse over and over. But here it is righteousness that is passed on by one righteous person. So this is not wickedness compounding. This is actually the flip of that. This is a good person impacting his family. And here's what I mean. We have already heard about the righteousness of Noah, and we're going to hear about it a couple more times here in this chapter. But you know what we're never once told about? The righteousness of his family. We're never told what their faith was. We're never told how good of people they were. And in fact, we'll find after the flood story that uh, one of Noah's sons is not that good of a person, and the other two seem to be, but one not so much. And so you have seven other people here, Noah's wife, his three sons, and their three wives, who are all protected by God just for the fact that they were related to Noah. That's really interesting to me because I grew up constantly hearing that one bad apple would spoil the whole bunch. And I often questioned as a kid why that also didn't work the other way. And my objections were usually dismissed as irrelevant since the point people wanted to make was that you should stay away from sinners. But amusingly, the picture in the Bible is frequently not of one bad person influencing a lot of good ones for bad, but one good person turning several bad ones good. I think of Abraham interceding for Lot's family in Sodom and how it was simply off of the faith of Abraham and his barter really with God that Lot was protected from that. He was saved because of Abraham. I think of how Moses influenced Israel and kept God from destroying it. I think of how you have Jesus who affected all of us. Now, obviously, bad people can influence you. I know there are some verses in Scripture that talk about that. But it's not all one way. It's not true that it's always the one bad apple that spoils the bunch. Sometimes the one bad apple just spoils itself and the rest are still okay for a little while. And sometimes the good, I realize this doesn't work in fruit, so the analogy breaks down, but that's what it is. It's an analogy. But sometimes the good actually affects the bad. Sometimes we can raise up the people around us. I think we do this especially with kids, but if you find yourself saying, oh, you know, don't hang around bad people because they'll always bring you down, they'll always affect you, well, I get that, and we should have good friends, but by the same token, the biblical pattern actually seems to be that good people can be an influence to others for good. And that really strongly comes out here in the story of Noah because we know nothing about these other people, and yet they are completely protected when no one else is, simply because they were connected to Noah. Speaking of Noah's righteousness, Robert Alter makes a good point here where he connects this statement of God to Noah, I have seen you righteous before me in this generation, with the description of Noah when we first meet him in chapter 6 verse 9, that he was a righteous man blameless in his time. And this is something the Bible tends to do a good bit, where you have what uh, Alter says is the narrator's report or evaluation confirmed by a near verbatim repetition in dialogue or vice versa. So in other words, when we first meet him, we're told, hey, this guy is righteous. And then before long, we hear God say, hey, you're righteous. So it's just kind of a way that the Bible will first say this is what's going to happen. And then it's confirmed by another character later on. And that is a pattern that, that happens sometimes in scripture. 
Now, as we go here into this chapter, we're going to see a situation almost like we had in chapters 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis. You know, remember in chapters 1 and 2, it was two separate creation stories, not one big one, but two distinct ones from slightly different angles telling the same story. We almost have that here in the flood story, because chapter 7 assumes information not provided in the previous chapter. And there's a lot of overlap here between the first half of chapter 7 and the second half of chapter 6 that we were on a couple weeks ago. Well, I guess it was a few weeks ago now because we had the, the break and the Halloween episodes. But there's a lot of overlap and there's also some striking differences. So much so that some people actually think there were two or more different flood narratives or traditions over time that had different versions going on. Some think it's based on the name of God that is used, like one of the stories used God's name, Yahweh. The other one just used the title, Elohim. Some look at the number of animals that Noah's supposed to bring onto the ark and how that's different, and they try to separate the stories out that way. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit here. They'll also point out maybe the word for flood that is used, because there's a couple of different ones. And so they, they try to make these clean distinctions of, oh, this was one tradition of the story, this was a second tradition of the story, and then years later some editor came in and smushed the two together into the one big story that we have today. And there may be something to that. I think there's definitely a lot of instances in the Bible where there were, I don't want to say competing traditions, but various traditions with some differences. And the editors, as they came in the time of the Second Temple in between the Testaments, they combined elements of the stories to bring together one big narrative. But it's really hard to make any kind of clean distinction here in chapters 6 and 7 because there's just so much overlap in terminology. So that's not really the position that I take, but I will point out some of the differences that we have going on here. The first one that comes up here in verse 2 is the number of animals that Noah takes onto the ark. See, in chapter 6, he was only ever told to take two of every animal. But here it says, of every clean animal you will take to you by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. So this is very different. Before we were only told by twos, and now we're told some by twos, some by sevens. Now, this is pretty close to when the flood actually starts, so I think that God must have told Noah about this difference earlier on, because if he just sprung this on him now, that would be really crazy. If you're expecting to just have two of every animal, and all of a sudden you're dealing with way more than that, like there's no way that this could have just been sprung on him at this point. It must be something that was earlier on mentioned and we just don't have recorded. Let's pause on this for a second, because I think most people, when they hear about Noah's Ark, they imagine animals coming two by two, male and female. You, know, you have the two giraffes and the two rhinoceroses and two monkeys and you know, whatever else. And then I love how you get the snooty Bible nerds, you know, the people who think that they really know scripture and, and they're the ones who come around and say, well, actually, and it's always a drawn out actually, it's, well, actually, it was seven of some and two of others. Well, to those people, I say, well, Actually, probably not, because it was not sevens and twos, but fourteen and two. And I can get away with saying, but actually, to the people who say, but actually, because I'm one of those people myself, so I, I totally get it. That, that's been my tendency over the years. And sometimes I feel like this podcast is just one big, but actually, to the way that we read the Bible. 
So looking at this, if you were to read this in Hebrew, it actually literally reads, of every clean animal you will take to you, seven, seven. It's the word for seven twice, side by side. So a lot of commentators think that this should not be by sevens, but actually by 14, seven, seven, or, you know, seven plus seven, 14. And that makes a lot more sense to me because how can you have the male and his female if you're taking seven? That's not an even number. You're going to end up with one extra. But if you have 14, you can have the male and his female. It's seven pairs of two, which I think would also just make more sense because of the Bible and sevens and twos. So yeah, that is probably that Noah took on two of every unclean animal and seven twos, 14 of every clean animal. And interestingly, that would better fit the Atrahasis myth, which is something that we mentioned last week. It's an ancient Akkadian epic that includes a flood narrative. In that story, the creator god makes two by two and seven by seven, seven males and seven females. So it would kind of match up with what we have here in the story as well, with going two by two and seven by seven which I think could even imply perhaps that it was 14 of the clean and four two by two of the unclean, but that's not as big of a dispute as the seven by seven going on there. The bigger question that shows up here is how the heck was that determined? Because you have to remember, this is well before Leviticus. This is well before any of the laws given on Sinai. This is well before Moses. So how is this determined at that time? There is no clean and unclean animal distinction given yet at this point in the Bible. And yet here it is just out of nowhere showing up clean and unclean as if we know what it is. So what's going on? Well, there are a few different paths that you can go down for this. One option that some people would say is, well, this is just how God saw it. There are some clean animals, some unclean ones, and he told the faithful people what he wanted in this, even before the law, just it wasn't recorded. But somewhere along the line, God gave instruction to the people who wanted to worship him, what he considered to be clean and unclean. And I guess that's possible. It's also an argument from silence. So you have to hold that position with a very very loose grip. It's kind of the same thing as going back to uh, Cain and Abel sacrificing. Like, how did they know to sacrifice? And I think most people would say, oh, well, God probably told Adam and Eve they should sacrifice. And Okay, that's an argument from silence. We don't have that anywhere. And is it possible? Yes. But you have to be careful asserting that as what actually happened. We have to acknowledge these are our best guesses at why these people were doing these things. So, yeah, that's possible. It could just be that God actually told them that. It's also possible that this is a later addition from the editors uh, who were compiling these stories together. Uh, most people would say that the Old Testament, the Tanakh, was compiled together uh, during the time of the exile. Now, the stories had existed long before that as oral tales, and they had been written down also long before that, uh, but they weren't necessarily compiled into one big corpus until the Second Temple period and the time of the exile. So since all of that is post-Levitical law, since all of that, they have the distinction of clean and unclean by that time. Some people would think, oh, well, it was just those redactors, they're called, or the editors, stepping in and writing that into the story. They're trying to tell you what a great person Noah is because he knows to distinguish between the clean and the unclean, even in that time. 
That is definitely a possibility. There is another possibility that it was just understood throughout different cultures, even at this time before the law, that there were some clean animals and some unclean animals. And there definitely are a lot of cultures in the ancient world that had that kind of distinction between clean and unclean. The problem is they didn't all have the same distinctions between clean and unclean. And this is not the topic I want to get into today. That is absolutely going to be another podcast episode someday when we get there. Uh, but a lot of Christians misunderstand what clean and unclean mean in Scripture. They are not synonymous with pure and sinful which is what we usually think. We think clean is good and uh, unclean is sinful. But that was not the biblical idea. There was a difference between the purity laws of the Levitical system about clean and unclean animals and the spiritual moral side of sin affecting the people. The best way I can describe this is by saying that within the law, you would be unclean if you touched a dead body. There is nothing sinful about touching a dead body. You know, if somebody dies in your house, you're going to need to touch the body. You know, if you have a family member die, you might touch their hand or something. There is nothing sinful or inherently morally wrong about touching a dead body, but it made you unclean. So it, it helps to make that distinction that unclean does not actually mean sinful. It just means it cannot be a part of the religious services of those people until it's able to be cleansed. So that distinction is important, and that seems to be something that is different about the Israelite system from other ancient systems, because a lot of times their quote-unquote clean versus unclean animals were about dietary restrictions, like only certain days of the month you could eat this. Almost like during Lent, on Friday you're supposed to eat fish if you're coming from a more liturgical tradition. All other meat would be considered unclean during that time. Or it was, sometimes it was even by class. Certain classes of people could eat this type of clean animal. Other classes of people only ate these unclean animals. So there is no direct correlation between what the Levitical laws call clean and unclean and what other cultures do. So I'm not sure that that's a great argument to just say, well, all of these different cultures back then already knew a distinction between clean and unclean. Personally, I think that the fact that none of the Levitical system has been set up yet, yet no one knows this stuff, is an indication that he may have been a priest and that he was coming from some sort of a system because this never specifically says that these are the same clean and unclean animals as in the Levitical law. It may have been within what his system of belief had. But I think it could be implying, since the priests are the ones who separate between clean and unclean, that Noah was a priest. And that's really a fascinating idea to me, that you would have this man existing outside of established Yahweh worship, and yet pleasing Yahweh and knowing what he wants. And I think that's a theme that shows up a lot in the Bible, is that a lot of times you have the established religion of the time and it's not good. And you have these people who exist kind of on the fringes of it. They don't quite check all of the boxes. They're very hard to pin down. And yet they're the ones who are pleasing God. There was no church in the days of Noah. There was no tabernacle. There was no uh, temple in Jerusalem. And yet you have this guy who is just randomly doing the work of a priest and pleasing God. I think of that with Melchizedek as well. Like we have Abraham as the main character of the story and out of nowhere you have this priest of Yahweh in a pagan city. 
Enoch is just this random guy who walks with God and gets divine knowledge from him. Elijah is actually an outcast from the Bible colleges of his day, if you will, and is on the run from basically the combination of state and church together. I realize it wasn't church, but state and religion together. What about Jesus? We only have one time where Jesus is recorded as going into quote-unquote church, the synagogue of his day, and he kind of upsets everybody by taking the scripture verse out of context. And then the other times that he walks into the places of established religion, he's tearing the whole place up and ruining their services. Some people won't like this, but I really think we have an idolatry of church in a lot of Christian circles today. I am not anti-church. I think that churches should exist. I think that there's a lot of good that they can do, and I think that they can be good for a lot of people as well. But it's just fascinating to me that a lot of characters in the Bible who are pleasing God and following him are actually people who are apart from the religious establishment of their day, and they're just doing their own thing following God as best as they can. And I think that's kind of the implication of, of what Noah is here. It's also interesting that the words used for male and female to refer to the animals here are actually the standard words for male and female humans, ish and isha, that we had all the way back from the first couple chapters. In these first few verses, God tells him to bring all of the animals onto the ark and then also all of the fowl of the air. So you'll note the merging of heaven and earth. We have the birds that live up in the heavens and the animals that are down on the earth. So here we go. This is going to be all throughout this chapter, all kinds of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 terminology. And I'll try to draw attention to it whenever it pops up. But it's constantly hyperlinking back to the narrative from Genesis 1 and 2. This chapter is a de-creation chapter. This is anti-creation. This is God stepping back, pulling back his hand, and all of the order that he brought into the chaos of the world in the first two chapters is just completely wiped out as the chaos flows back on top of it. So we started out our story, Genesis 1, with the chaotic water and God hovering above it, and he brings land out of that. He brings order out of that. And what we're about to see is actually that chaos water is going to return over the land. So keep this in mind as we move forward here. Verse 4, God warns him, In seven days I will cause it to rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made I will destroy from off the face of the earth. Now it's interesting to me that he says, in seven days I'm going to cause it to rain. There is absolutely no reason at this point for God to wait seven days. I mean, how, how much time did Noah really need? He's been prepping this thing for over a hundred years now. God could say, I'm starting the rain tomorrow. I'm starting it in an hour. Like, I, I really think Noah was pretty prepared by this point, but he gives him a week, seven days. Come on, right? <laughs> Creation. This is like the anti-creation week. We have the earth preparing to go back to its decreation state. It's just completely flipped on the head of Genesis 1 through 2. 40 is going to become a common amount of time for testing in Scripture. Now, I, I think I've mentioned this before. I am not the kind of person who tries to make a lot out of biblical numbers. I think you can go way too far down that rabbit hole. But there are definitely some significant numbers in Scripture. And we just kind of need to loosely tie the themes together and not try to make too much out of them. 40 is a good instance of this. When you start seeing the same thing happen related to the same number, 
you can probably say there's some pattern here. Not necessarily some hidden meaning, but just a little Easter egg that the author is winking at you. So here we have 40 days that there's going to be this time of testing or renewal. The earth is going to be in limbo, if you will. Well, Moses spent 40 years on the backside of the desert as a shepherd before he led Israel. He also spent 40 days on the mountain. Elijah traveled 40 days to the same mountain centuries later. The Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. So you can see this becomes a consistent pattern throughout Scripture. I'll touch on this again when we get to it in a few verses, but there's a little bit of debate about exactly how long the flood lasted. This is another thing with Bible numbers. It's really hard to count them accurately in the Bible. They use different calendar systems. Sometimes they use different numbering systems. Sometimes the word for one number can be very similar to or almost identical to another number. Like you can have 7, 17, and 70 be almost identical in the spelling. So it can be hard sometimes to say what exactly does this mean. You can have numbers representing groups or standing in for groups. Like you can have sometimes thousands is used and people debate over whether it actually means thousand or large companies. It can be really, really hard to count Bible numbers. And so when we're trying to figure out exactly how long the flood lasted, we have a couple of clues here in the passage. There are some parts that say 40 days, and that tends to focus on the rain. But then there are other parts that say 150 days. And I'll make this argument when we get there in a few verses, but that could also possibly be talking not just about the waters as a whole, but the rain as well. So it could be that God says here it's going to rain for 40 days, but then it actually extends to 150. And then there's also a time when it takes for the floodwaters to come down, and we'll get to that by the end of the episode. It gets very convoluted. It's very hard to say exactly how long the flood would have taken. But 40 here is how we start off. God says for 40 days, it's going to rain. And that's all we know. Like We don't know anything else at this point. So I think the average person reading this without any preconception of where the story is going would think this whole thing is going to be over after 40 days. So that's going to be interesting. As we see, that's not quite what happens. Oh, I definitely got to point this out because I, I think this is huge. The word that's often translated destroy at the end of the verse here, every living substance I've made, I will destroy from off the face of the earth. That word doesn't necessarily have to mean destroy. It means to wipe out or to wipe clean. And in fact, sometimes it's even used in scripture of blotting out a person's sin, giving them a fresh start. So I think the implication is that God is restarting the earth. He is blotting out the sins that have happened on the land. He's wiping the slate clean and starting over. This is going to be a new creation. I think that's a very different way of looking at it than saying that he destroyed the earth. He's restarting the earth. Maybe it's semantics, but to me, I think that gives a better picture because then there's a future to it. A lot of times Christians just see God as destroying the earth here and he's going to destroy the earth again. That's another conversation for another day. We'll possibly get to there by the end of the series. I'm considering doing a special episode on that later, but just a teaser for now. But we focus so much on God destroying the world when really it's always about remaking and taking what is there and bringing new life into it. So I think that's worth keeping in mind as we read through this story. Verse 5 says, Noah did according to all that Yahweh commanded him. This has been like an ellipsis, these five verses. It's like a second telling of chapter 6, that second storyline that I mentioned at the start. 
and now we're moving more into a new narrative. Verse 6 says that Noah was 600 years old when the flood happened. And that's fascinating because the Atrahasis epic says that 600 years passed after the conversation that the hero Atrahasis and his god Enki have. So Enki is one of the gods, and he hears that the gods want to send a drought to wipe out humanity. So he conspires with the human Atrahasis to save his family, even though the gods wanted to wipe out all of life. But the time between that conversation and the time when the flood actually comes in that story is 600 years. So it's just interesting to me that you have that specific number there, and then you have that specific number as Noah's age. So we, we see some comparison there. And there are a number of comparisons between those ancient flood epics like Atrahasis, Gilgamesh, and Enuma Elish, and the one that's here in the Bible. In a lot of those, especially in Atrahasis, there's a lot of repetition as well, just like there's a lot of repetition that we're going to see in this chapter. I want to talk for a second here about the word translated flood in verse 6, because it's the Hebrew word mabul, and it only shows up here in this flood narrative, and then once in Psalm 29.10, which reads, Yahweh sits on the flood, Yea, Yahweh sits king forever. And we can get into some of the hyperlinks there in that psalm another time, but that's some really neat connections there to the flood story. So this mabul word doesn't necessarily mean flood as much as it seems to mean the waters in the skies above. You'll remember from our discussions of the ancient cosmology where they saw this as like a snow globe. And above there are waters in the skies that make it blue, just like the blue waters all around us. So what divides it is the firmament, the rakia. There's waters above, there's waters below. And so this mabu word seems to be more about the waters above than it does the waters below. It's only used in this flood narrative and then that one time poetically in that psalm. Some people even think there may be a little bit of onomatopoeia going on here, of kind of like the bubbling up of the water. Mabul, you can kind of hear maybe a little bit of it in your voice. Uh, it's possible. That, that's the kind of thing that's just really conjecture, but it, it's interesting. Verse 7 says that Noah went in, his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives with him. There's a lot of mention here of Noah's wife. And some would argue that the frequent mentions of her are to contrast him with the polygamous culture around him, because we only ever hear about Noah's singular wife. And when you think about that, that is kind of unique. Most main characters in the biblical story had multiple wives. Abraham did, David did. So if there's a wife mentioned, it's usually one of a few or several, you know, once we get to someone like Solomon, but we're only told about the one wife of Noah. So it's possible that that is setting him up in contrast to the polygamous culture around him. Now, nowhere in the Bible at all do we get names for Noah's wife or his daughters-in-law. And that's very typical of an ancient text like this. It's going to be very patriarchal. It's going to be focused on the men in the story and how they carried on the family line. The women were basically just there for making babies. And that is problematic from a modern day view. But we have to remember that these are ancient texts. And a lot of times the Bible actually went a step further toward equality than most other ancient texts did. But there are times like this where uh, you know, it would be really nice to know the names of these women here but they just were not something that the author decided to include. Now, most traditions will say that Noah's wife's name was Naamah. 
if you are really, really paying attention, that may remind you of a previous name that you have heard before in this podcast when we talked about Genesis 4, because Genesis 4.22 mentions the daughter of Lamech. This is the bad Lamech, but he had three sons and one daughter, and the daughter's name was Naamah. Now, I, I tend to think that this probably just became tradition because of the similarity of how you have a Lemek in Cain's line and a Lemek in Shem's line, because the Lemek in Shem's line was Noah's father. So I think that this may have just been some confusion on the part of ancient scholars putting the two lines together and saying that, well, maybe Noah's wife was actually his sister here, but they wouldn't have likely have been related since Naamah was actually from Cain's line instead of Seth's. But whether or not that happened, most traditions will give her the name Naama. And then several traditions exist all across the world for the names of the wives of Noah's sons, and they are different. There's not a lot of agreement across different traditions for what their names would be. Sometimes they sound alike. Some of the more popular ones are Nahalat Manuk, which would be Shem's wife, Zedkat Nabu, Ham's wife, and Aratka Japheth's wife. So those are quite some mouthfuls right there but potential names that we have from tradition. Verse 8 sounds very familiar to what we've heard already of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean, of fowls, of everything that creeps on the earth. There went two and two unto Noah in the ark, male and female, as God commanded Noah. So this repetition can feel really tedious to us, but it's here to take us back to creation. It's reminding us of the last time animals came to a human in the story, and that was Adam as he was naming them. So we kind of have the story inverting on itself. It's, it's like working backwards to get us to the time of decreation state of chaos water again. A lot of commentators will also suggest that a lot of this repetition is like the sound of a drumbeat of approaching rain. It's very specifically supposed to be this repetitive because it, it gets you almost feeling like there's something coming, some impending doom that is approaching. And I could see that as being very possible. Verse 10 says, it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. Now, it could be after seven days, as the King James has it. A lot of other translations will say on the seventh day or something along those lines, and that is also possible. Either way, it doesn't make a huge difference theologically, but if you say after seven days, that implies that this is actually happening on the eighth day. And I know some people would say, well, a biblical day, you have to count the whole day or half the day. Or you know, Everybody has a different way of how they think days were counted at that point. And that's a whole other argument that usually comes into play when we talk about how long Jesus was in the tomb and what day that would have made the crucifixion. If you have no clue what I'm talking about there, you know what? We'll, we'll have to make an episode out of that. We'll probably do that around Easter. I kind of like having these little uh, holiday episodes, so we'll see how that goes in the future. But yeah, we'll definitely have to cover that once Easter rolls around. So I'll make a note for myself with that. But again, going back to this, uh, whether it was on the seventh day, after seven days, eight day, you know, it really doesn't make a huge difference in this story here. And either one of those is linguistically possible. Verse 11 gives us the most specific measure of time given so far in the biblical story. In the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven opened. Uh, if you are familiar with some of these biblical stories, especially in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and especially if you've read in an older version like the King James, 
that kind of language will sound very familiar to you. I think especially once we kind of get into Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, there's a lot of in the such and such year of this person in the second month in the 15th day of the month XYZ happened. And so that does become very common, but this is the first time it shows up here. So this is the first specific mention of time in a biblical story, trying to date it to a specific event, a specific time and place. But the problem is it's still completely subjective to Noah's life. Like this doesn't really tell us anything. It's not like being compared to the reign of some other king and we can try to figure out when that king reigned. Like this doesn't help us date when exactly this happened because it is just completely subjective to Noah's life, the 600th year of his life. When we talked about the comparison with the Sumerian king list, we mentioned that there's a possibility that maybe the people listed in chapter 5 were kings or rulers of some sort over cities and that maybe Noah was. That would fit some other ancient traditions where the flood hero was a king. And so then maybe that would fit some of the stories that talk about in the such and such year of this person's reign. Like, you know, maybe that's kind of what's going on here if Noah was a king. But uh, that is all just complete conjecture. There's there's no way we can know that for sure. But the further that we go in the Bible, the more dates start to connect to historical events. This is especially once we get to Abraham and past that, we'll start to have mention of historical figures or dates that make it easier to pinpoint when exactly these stories are taking place. But from chapters 1 through chapter 11, you don't really have that. And so there are some people who see this division as almost being like prehistory, if you will. Um, like chapters 1 through 11 are written very differently than chapters 12 through 50, where 12 through 50 gets a little more grounded. 1 through 11 is kind of more fantastical stories in a way, because we're talking about like the creation of everything. We're talking about a flood that covered the known world at the time. So these stories almost seem to exist like in a time of their own. There, There's no correlation to stuff that's happening in the world around it. And so there are some people who would see these as not necessarily history, but actually prehistory and, and almost like existing outside of time, if you will, or really just before humanity started recording time in the ways that we do now. And that'll come to play in something that I'm going to mention here at the end. So I know that can sound a little weird, but just keep it stored away for when we get toward the end. Now let's talk about the term that shows up here in verse 11, the great deep. That's the Hebrew word tahom for deep. And the Net Bible notes say it refers to the watery deep, the salty ocean, especially the primeval ocean that surrounds and underlies the earth. So it's kind of like all of the ocean water, any water that exists in the deepest, darkest corners of the earth. And this is interesting because then it gets paired with the windows of heaven. And the IVP Bible background commentary has a great note on this. I definitely recommend using the IVP Bible background commentary. Walton, I think, was one of the main editors on it. And there's a, a lot of really good cultural context information in there. And here's what they say about the windows of heaven. The text uses the poetic phrase windows of heaven to describe the openings through which the rain came down. This is not scientific language, but reflects the perspective of the observer much as we would speak of the sun setting. The only other occurrence of such a term in ancient Near Eastern literature, this is where it gets interesting, is in the Canaanite myth of Baal building his house, where the window, quote-unquote, of his house is described as a rift in the clouds. But even here, it is not associated with rain. 
Alternate terminology occurs in the Mesopotamian texts, where gates of heaven are in the east and west for the sun to use in its rising and setting. Clouds and wind, however, also enter by these gates. So not quite the same thing. It seems to be a little bit of a unique take on what windows of heaven would have meant in that culture, but it is interesting to see the connection there. And when you put these two ideas together of the Tahom, the, the deep abyss waters, and these windows of heaven that let down the waters from above the Rakia, the firmament, you have waters above and waters below coming together in the flood to destroy the earth. And that's significant because when you think about the last three chapters that have happened, it has been a story of rebellion both above and below. Humanity rebels against God, but then so do the sons of God in verse 6. So just like you have this rebellion, both on the earth and in heaven, both above and below, so you have the waters coming from above and below to cover over the land. That's just an interesting little connection there, uh, that if you take a view other than the sons of God being divine, supernatural beings, it wouldn't account for that why the waters would come both from above and below. And I think there's a connection there. Verse 12 notes that the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And some have tried to suggest that this word for rain, gesem, is more of a like cataclysmic rainfall, heavier than regular rain, because uh, the, the common word for rain would have been matar. But there's, there's no real evidence for that. They basically seem to be synonyms. Verse 13 says, In the selfsame day entered Noah, Shem, and Ham, and Japheth, and the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of the sons with them into the ark. So this almost makes it sound like this is after the 40 days of verse 12. This is kind of what I'm talking about, where it can be a little confusing with the time. But this could just be restating what we already said a few verses ago. I mean, as soon as it starts to rain, it's not like it was flooding that fast. So, you know, there may have been a little bit of time that they had before anything actually started to happen where they fully needed to be inside. Verse 14 says that they bring in all of these different animals. And it says that all of the beast after its kind, the cattle, uh, which again is just like beasts of the field. It's not just cows. Every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, every fowl after his kind, every bird after every sort. Literally, it would read every bird, every wing. <laughs> I just, I love the sound of that. It's so poetic. And here we go, creating this mini Eden on the ark as we get ready for the chaos waters to crash over the land again. Verse 15 says that they went to Noah and the ark, two and two of all flesh. And it's kind of weird. Again, like we've already had the part that says some were seven and seven, but now we just have two and two. So it's kind of inconsistent in what the author wants to focus on here. But who knows, maybe he's just trying to save some space <laughs> and assumes that we'll remember the 7 and 7 for the rest. But I kind of feel like that would be an important thing to mention since those were the ones considered clean in that culture. But uh, regardless, everything that has, it says the breath of life goes in. And this breath of life is another callback to chapters 1 and 2. We had the breath of life there that God breathes into the nostrils, the breath of life. Verse 16 is the first time that the words God and Lord, or Yahweh, so Elohim for God, Yahweh, translated Lord, are in the same verse and not side by side. So sometimes you'll have Yahweh God or even God Yahweh, but this is the first time they show up together in the same verse, but not side by side. 
I don't know that there's much of anything to that. If you follow a documentary hypothesis where you think that one version of the story only used the word Elohim, one version only used Yahweh, and then they got smushed together, well, then this verse kind of becomes an interesting pivot point for that. Verse 16, at the very end, it says Yahweh shut him in. I think that's a little bit of a reversal of Eden as well, because at the end of chapter 3, God shut the humans out of the garden, and now he shuts them in to what's essentially a garden, a mini Eden there, with all of the plants and animals inside. Verse 17 says, The flood was forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lift above the earth. So this is where it starts getting really interesting and some really weird stuff starts happening below the level of English here that we see in the text. Because I think that this is implying that it was only after these 40 days that the ark was lifted up by the waters. And that would really make sense when you think about it, because again, as soon as the rain started, the ark wouldn't have been floating. It would have taken time for there to have been enough water all around for the ark to get up from off the ground where it was built. And especially if they built it in any kind of a mountainy region, which is very possible, you know, it could have taken even more time. So it seems like for those 40 days, the Ark was still just sitting stationary there. Nothing was moving. And it was only after that that the Ark actually started to move. And when it does move, we get to some really, really weird stuff in the text. For example, it says that the waters increased and bare up the Ark and it was lift above the earth. That word for bear up the Ark is the normal word for lifting up something or going up in the Hebrew text. But there's that guy I mentioned a few weeks back when we were finishing up our Genesis 1-6 through 6 series, J. Caleb Jones. He fancies himself a biblical scholar on the internet. There's a lot that I don't necessarily agree with him on. He gets really into the weeds on some stuff. But he also has some really unique views that are just a little too perfect not to have something to them. So this is one instance where I was reading some of his work and I was really fascinated by what he pulled out here. Because he draws attention to Exodus 25 and says that there's another box in scripture called an ark that is also supposed to be carried. That's the Ark of the Covenant. And the same word for it being carried, it's the word Nassah in Hebrew, which is like the easiest Hebrew term to remember. You can impress all of your friends and say you know a word of Hebrew. And it's Nassah, which means to lift or carry. Why is that easy? Because it's spelled exactly like Nasa. NASA, we have liftoff. Easiest Hebrew word ever to remember. Total coincidence, but that was always a fun one. So NASA. It's not pronounced NASA, it's NASA in Hebrew. And so, so don't go around saying you know Hebrew and, and say the word NASA. That, that would not go well. But anyway, the Ark, not just of Noah, but also the Ark of the Covenant, was to be borne up, carried up in that way. And a lot of times when something is carried up in scripture like that, it is in the presence of of God. Here's where it gets really, really weird, and this is still something that Jones has pointed out here. There are two different main words for land in Hebrew that are going to be used here in Genesis. The first one is Eretz, and that's one usually translated earth. This is where you have the heavens and the earth. The heavens up above, the skies up above, the earth below, the Eretz below. But then you have another one that is contrasted more so with the water, and it's often translated dry land. That's the Hebrew word yabasa. You would almost think that yabasa would be used here because we're talking about land that is no longer dry. 
the dry land is overtaken by the water. But that's not the word that shows up here in this flood story at all. It's the word Eretz. So it's as if the author is trying to get you to think not that Noah is above the quote-unquote dry land, it's no longer dry, but that he's actually above the Eretz, all of the land. He has been taken up from the region of the land. And if you are not in the region of the land in the Bible, there, there's only two that have been contrasted here in Genesis so far. You have the heavens and you have the earth. So if you're not on the earth, you're in the heavens. So you have in Exodus 25, an ark, a box being taken up and it's there with the presence of God. And here you have an ark, a box being taken up. Where? Well, if it's not on the earth, it's in the heavens, in the skies. Remember that they thought the skies were waters above. So if it's all one big water now, then yeah, if there's no distinction between the waters above and the waters below, it's all one big water. Well, where's God? He's above that. And if Noah's floating on this one big mass of water, that means he's now in the presence of God. And if you're not convinced of that yet, just wait. There's more. Because in verse 18, when it says the waters prevailed, they were increased greatly on the earth, and the ark went up on the face of the waters. That word went up, it's the word for walked. Now, I understand why a translation is not going to say that the ark walked on the waters. That's a little weird. But it's missing a key point if you don't translate it that way. Because Noah walked with God. God's presence is above the heavenly waters that are now over the earth again. Which takes us back to Genesis 1, where God's presence was over the chaos waters. God's presence is over these chaos waters as well. And now Noah has walked with the ark into God's presence. Who was the last person in the text to walk before God? Enoch. And he also was taken up into God's presence. Mind blown. <laughs> this is insane. It's almost like the ark is taken up out of space and time, and it is now in the presence of God. So notice that nowhere in this text, and depending on your Bible translation, this may be different, but nowhere in Hebrew is a verb for float used with the ark. No boat terminology is used. There is nothing that says that Noah piloted the ark. There is no rudder. There are no sails. The word float is never used. I know a couple translations do say float, but no Hebrew word for floating is used to describe the ark. It is said to be carried up and then to walk on the face of the waters. And I think the implication is before the presence of God. I almost wonder if this is why figuring out the timeline of what happens here with the ark is so difficult, because it's almost like the ark was taken up out of time. And they're just in this own little mini Eden. It actually reminds me, and I don't, you know, I don't even think I mentioned this in the podcast. I know I added it to the notes later on, but I think I forgot to mention it when we were talking about chapter two. And it says that God planted a garden east in Eden. The Hebrew word for east can also mean way back then, old times, aforetimes. And so there are some people who say, God didn't plant the garden east. He planted the garden in old times, in the ancient days. So it's not actually a description of place as much as it is time. To use the worn out time travel movie trope, it's not about where are we, it's about when are we. So the Bible is not saying God placed a garden in the east. It's saying that, well, a long time ago, 
God placed it there. It's almost like saying once upon a time or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's kind of signaling that these are almost like their own little outside of time stories before we get into the more grounded tales of Abraham on. It's really weird, but it's there. We have what's almost like a time traveling arc in the story. <laughs> It's almost like uh, Noah was the original Doctor Who and <laughs> the original TARDIS. Yeah, I don't know. It's a weird way of viewing it. I'm not fully convinced that this is what you're supposed to be thinking of as it being temporal instead of location with some of this language. But there's just enough there that I can read it with a little bit of a wink and a nod and be like, oh, OK, you know, I, I, I can see it. And it's fun. Very different way of reading that story than I remember from Sunday school. Verse 18, going back here for a second, because it says that the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. So in Hebrew, this is describing the waters as mighty warriors on the earth. That word prevailed is the word for the gibberim from chapter 6 just turned into a verb. And these gibberim were supposed to be the mighty ones from these ancient stories, and yet they end up covered under these waters. The waters were more gabar than the gibberim. Verse 19 says, And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Now, whenever you see exceedingly or something along those lines show up in, like, the King James, it's almost always going to be an infinitive absolute or something else in Hebrew where it's trying to say, so this is going to be mainly in the Old Testament, the Tanakh, but it's a way of like intensifying it. And it's often going to be the same word repeated twice, just in a slightly different form. And that's basically what we have here. And again, it's kind of a reversal of the creation narrative, because at the end of every day of creation, you have a declaration of the day being tov, of being good. And then on the seventh day, you have it being tov ma'od, very good. Well, here, when it says that the waters prevailed exceedingly, that is gibaru ma'od ma'od. So it's that same word ma'od for like very or extremely, but it's actually mentioned twice here. It's like it very, very much covered the land. Now, high hills here, a lot of translations will say mountains, but hills is actually appropriate here. And I think that it may be the more appropriate way to go because high hills is the terminology used in the Bible for pagan altars. So I think that this is not actually trying to say, oh, the waters covered Everest. They were over the highest mountains. I think it's saying exactly what it says. It covered over the high hills, the pagan altars. This is not so much a statement of how high the waters went, but of how strong Yahweh is because he was able to submerge the worship centers of these pagan gods. The gods were seen as living on these high hills, and even they couldn't escape the judgment that Yahweh was bringing. Earlier, I mentioned how there was the word translated destroyed, but it really means to wipe clean or to give a, a fresh start to something. And we kind of have that same thing going on here. A little bit of a play on words, I, I think, gets missed a lot because it says that the waters prevailed exceedingly over the land, over the high hills that were under the whole sky were covered. And that word for covered, it can mean to cover, but it can also mean to forgive. So I think there's an intentional double entendre going on here with cleansing language, that the land is being forgiven from humanity, if you will. It's being cleansed or we're getting a chance to start over. Verse 20 says, 15 cubits upward. Now, a cubit was about 18 inches, so we're talking roughly 22 and a half feet here. So 22 and a half feet upward, the waters prevailed and the mountains were covered. 
Now, just taking this straight at face value, can you see a problem? 22, the waters went up 22 and a half feet, and the mountains were covered. Now, that word mountain is the same word for high hill in the previous verse, so it's kind of interesting that in verse 19, the word is translated hills. In the very next verse, it's translated mountains. The King James authors were very interested in having variety in their translation, and that's okay, but it often obscures words that are actually the same and are meant to connect. So it's saying that over these high hills, they were covered 22 and a half feet of water. That's not a very high hill. See, we assume that the text is saying it was 15 cubits, 22 and a half feet above the highest hills or the highest mountains, depending on how you're translating that. But it doesn't actually say that. It just says the waters went up 22 and a half feet. Now, I will say, water going up 22 and a half feet where water's not supposed to be there, uh, that's pretty crazy. Uh, I live in an apartment complex. That would just about submerge the building that we are in. That's kind of crazy to think about, you know, that we don't live in a low flood zone. So we usually have decent clearance when there's any kind of flooding in the area. So to think of that much water covering, that that is still pretty big. This is not something where it specifically says the waters were 22 and a half feet above the mountains or the hills, but just that the waters went up 22 and a half feet and the hills were covered. So maybe the geography of the land was really, really different back then, or maybe it is that it was 22 and a half feet over. It's not very clear, and that's kind of going to be something that might change depending on if you see this as a regional or a global flood. It is also possible that this is mentioned because the ark is said to be about 30 cubits tall. So perhaps this is saying that the ark was partially submerged, which would then lead it to run aground at the end of the story. So if the floodwaters go up 20 cubits and the ark is 30, you have it partially submerged, it then runs aground? Eh, maybe. Verse 22 says that all in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land died. Robert Alter notes that the Hebrew nishmat ruaim is unusual. The first two terms, in a way, doubling each other. The breath of the breath of life is how it would literally be read. So he goes on to point out how this could be trying to draw attention either to the tiniest little thing that had life in it died, or it could be a more comprehensive way of saying everything in this area died. Verse 23, and every living substance was destroyed, which was on the face of the ground, both man, cattle, creeping things, fowls of, of the sky. They were destroyed from the earth. Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. And here's where we have to look back at the earlier descriptions of 40 days and realize that the Bible never actually says the rain stopped after 40 days. It is very possible that the rain continued for these 150 days. And I will tell you guys, I have been racking my brain for the last couple of weeks here, uh, possibly, I, yeah, actually probably like a month, trying to figure out why 150 days. Because every other number in the story has some significance. 40 and 7 are here a lot, but 150 just feels super random. Like, where did this come from? And I have gone so deep in the weeds trying to find anybody who gives some indication of maybe 150 in like the Atrahasis epic or Gilgamesh or something. Nothing. I could not find anything. So I have a couple of ideas of why this could be 150, and they're not the greatest, but it's what I've got right now. 
So if you end up with anything better, please let me know. But one thought I had is that it could be tying into Psalm 150, because there are 150 Psalms in the Hebrew Scriptures. So maybe there's some connection that the author is trying to make between Psalm 150 and this story here in Genesis 7. I think it's possible because Psalm 150 does actually mention the firmament, the rakia. Interestingly enough, it also mentions several musical instruments, one of them being a harp. And the first time that the word harp is mentioned in the biblical story at all is Genesis 4 talking about Cain's descendants and one who is particularly skillful in a harp. So maybe it's drawing on some of that flood language and even the wicked generations of Cain and like inverting that and saying that everyone gets a chance to praise God in the psalmist's economy there. So maybe there's some connection there. I think the firmament one gives me a little bit of hope there could be a hyperlink, but it's kind of sketchy. And I came across one other possible idea, and I feel like this one's really hanging by a thread, but I'll throw it out there. And it could be because there is a word in the Tanakh that is used 150 times in the entirety of the Old Testament. And it is the word naga. Now, naga means to strike or to hit something. And the first time that that shows up is in Genesis 3 when Eve reaches out to touch the tree, and it's that word naga. So it's usually used of striking something, but can also mean like to reach out and grab something. It is used in the plague narratives in Exodus of striking the doorpost with blood. So maybe there's some tie-in here. The scribes kept really good records of how often words showed up and which word belonged where. And so it's possible they could have known that one showed up 150 times and... You know, this is like God striking the earth because of her reaching out, you know, nagaing the tree. So God nagas the land. I, I don't know. I, I think that one's kind of on by a thread there. And a lot of times when people try to make some argument based on, oh, this word shows up this number of times in scripture, those usually aren't the best arguments. So I'm really not making much out of that. I don't want you to make much out of that either. I'm just saying this is the best I've got. I was even trying to figure out, is it maybe like working in halves? Like Noah has the the 40 days of rain and then there's 150 days and then that the waters go up and then maybe there's 150 days the waters go down because there's another 40 day waiting period then you have the seven days before the flood happens you have the seven days with the birds but there's more than seven days with the birds it's actually 14 and so it just it didn't add up you know i thought i could come up with some neat thing where it was like a, a chiasm with 7 40 150 and then going the other way 150 47 it it didn't work it really messed up because then there was another time when an extra 10 days ended up in there i had to account for there was just no way i could get some significance out of this 150 no matter how hard i tried I really think there's got to be something to it because every other number in here has some significance. I'm really not trying to go into like the gematria sort of thing or finding some hidden meaning in it. I just figure there has to be something. I kind of hate ending the episode this way, but you know, I guess it helps to show I am still learning all of this myself. And if you are listening to this and you have any idea of what the 150 days might be symbolic of or why this might be here in the midst of all of these other symbolic numbers, 
hey, I am more than interested in hearing from you. So you can contact us on our website. We have a contact us section on the bottom of the page. You can email us at cconn at thebibleuncut.com. You can also comment on the posts related to this episode and let me know what do you think was the reason for it taking that long. And also let's talk about the time that the flood actually lasted because is this 40 days that the waters were there and then another 150 after that? Are the 40 part of the 150? Did it stop raining at the 40 and just the waters kept going up somehow for the rest? Did it rain that whole time? It's really ambiguous in the text and it it is completely okay for us to walk away with different ideas of what exactly happened in this story because at the end of the day when we're having these discussions everybody wins because we are meditating on scripture whether or not you walk away from this agreeing with what i've said or thinking along these same lines you have spent an hour of your day thinking about the bible and that's a win i count this as a very worthwhile book for study And so even if we come away with different ideas, we've studied it together for the last hour. And that is what meditating on scripture is all about. Not the most satisfying ending to chapter seven, but we have a lot really interesting coming up next week. I am super excited for chapter eight because we are going to have biblical theology session on steroids here. And this is right up in my wheelhouse. Sometimes I feel like this podcast, I I hope not, but sometimes I feel like it can come across almost a little negative because I'm constantly saying, well, here's the way we tend to read the Bible, and that's not accurate. (laughs) This is why. And that can be frustrating when you've had years of reading the Bible a certain way, and all of a sudden, you know, this punk kid comes around and says, yeah, that's actually wrong, and here's why. So I don't just want to be someone who's constantly tearing down. I also want to build up. And so next week, we have a lot of really awesome examples I can dig into of biblical theology of how we can trace a particular word and theme from this story through the rest of scripture. So it's just going to be like an advanced college class on doing biblical theology next week. This is the stuff to get excited about. This is the stuff that will make you go, whoa, that is awesome. How did I never see that in the Bible before? So we have all kinds of stories like that coming up next week. I I think it's a solid three or more that we're going to do. We are also going to talk about where the ark actually landed, because if you think you know where the ark is, or at least the general location, you're probably wrong. It's probably not what you think. We're also going to talk about the birds that Noah sends out and what significance they may have had, and even of the olive branch that comes back. And then we're going to talk about the significance of his offering a sacrifice to God and what that may have meant and why he thought he needed to do that at that point. So next week is going to be chock full of all kinds of awesome discussions. And until then, stay curious and keep asking questions about the uncut and unfiltered Bible. You've been listening to the Bible uncut and unfiltered. We hope we provided a healing place to discuss the questions you can't ask and the context you won't learn in church. If you enjoyed the podcast, Would you take a minute to share it with a friend? You could also rate and review on your podcast app. If you'd like to donate to keep our work going, you can go to our website, thebibleuncut.com, and click on the Support Us tab. While you're there, check out the recommended resources and blog where we post show notes and other articles. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.